we inhabit a suffering world. In God's grace, there is much on this planet to celebrate and to enjoy. Yet as a race, we groan under the heavy strain of human suffering. A little girl falls and scrapes her knee. One day, she will lie in a hospital bed writhing in pain as disease snuffs out her life. A boy agonizes over being cut from the team. One day, his heart will nearly explode when his wife and children leave him. A young couple is frustrated to discover that they don't have enough money to repair their second car. But one day, they will lose their home and declare bankruptcy. A mother cries out in agony as she delivers a child. One day, she will stand grieving by that child's gravesite. A young man endures ridicule to trust Christ as Savior, but one day he will be unjustly hauled off to prison and tortured there for his faith. And to these little snippets of individual suffering, we multiply the trial exponentially as we consider the widespread suffering of war and genocide, of revolution and epidemics and famine and natural disaster, of the inroads of pervasive sin and futility and entropy that frustrates every endeavor in this fallen world. And as God's people, we are not at all immune to suffering. We know this. Yet a solid grasp of the doctrine of divine providence transforms the way that we understand suffering and respond to it. A faithful confidence in the doctrine of God's providence is powerfully stabilizing and life-transforming. It is a filter through which we understand suffering in a unique way. You may recall the counsel of the theologian John Calvin that we mentioned in the introduction to this series. Remember, he said, ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. Calvin made this bold claim, as you may recall, as he wrote in defense of his own friends and his French countrymen who, as he wrote, were being persecuted for Christ. Fully aware what his friends were suffering, Calvin claimed that ignorance of providence is a greater misery than being burned at the stake for Christ. He claimed that suffering and understanding providence as we deal with suffering is so essential that without a true knowledge of providence, that is a greater misery than being widowed and orphaned. It is a greater misery than being unjustly driven from your homeland. Greater than the pain of suffering is the pain of not understanding God's providence in the face of that suffering. So through this series, we have learned from passage after passage that God sovereignly ordains all that comes to pass, including the presence of evil. We have learned that God governs all that comes to pass such that He steers every moment of time, every free choice of man 
every circumstance of life to fulfill the purpose for which He brought the universe ultimately into being. And we've learned through these weeks that God does all of this to display the glory of His name and to serve the ultimate good of His people. One of the most significant practical effects of this doctrine in our lives is that it transforms our understanding of and our response to suffering. A faithful, biblically accurate trust in the doctrine of divine providence radically changes the way a believer relates to suffering. And I'd like us to consider that distinct approach to suffering under two propositions that are drawn out of Scripture. We'll look at a number of texts again today as we wind our way down in this series and deal with application of this doctrine of providence. What I'm going to say here is a belief that we root in the teaching and revelation of Scripture. It is radical truth. It distinguishes us entirely from the world in which we live. Hear these words. We can trust that God sovereignly ordains our suffering and uses it for our ultimate good. We can have faith and confidence that the suffering and the trials that we experience in this life, God has chosen to bring it about and He is using it for our good. There is perhaps no more succinct memorable statement in Scripture of this principle to this effect than we find in Paul's letter to the Romans. I invite you to chapter 8. Verses 28-30 through 30 are verses that every Christian should know well. This is a place in the Bible that we should be able to find, perhaps even quote these verses. They are crucial in this world of suffering and trial. They are a word from God of confidence and hope. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, Paul writes to the Romans, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. It cannot be said that all things work together for the good of those who do not love God. For those who love self, and do not embrace the Gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing ultimately goes well. An empty existence in time and eternal judgment in hell is their destiny. There is nothing good about that. But God's people, people who are called according to His purpose, can know this about every event in our lives of trial and suffering, all things work together for good. Paul does not say that all things are good. Rather, God employs all things to accomplish His good purposes. Notice that these good purposes are not defined by the dictates of ease and safety. They're not dialed up according to what we might choose for our lives. The good ends that God purposes are directed to a specific goal. And that is described in verse 29. For these that God has called, and by the way, verse 28, that's not just an offer of salvation. This is an effectual call, such as when, for instance, in the physical realm, Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb. 
It's a call that brings one out of life. For those that are so called, according to the purpose of God, verse 29, all things work together for good for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those that He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. We see the string there of God's saving purposes. Predestining individuals to salvation, calling them to life, justifying them, that is forgiving their sin, and treating them as righteous in His sight, and ultimately bringing them to glory. It is these individuals of whom it can be said, all things work together for good. They work together to what end? So we see here in verse 29 specifically, God foreknew certain individuals and predestined them for salvation to be conformed to the image of His Son. God works all things together for the good of those who He has chosen to the end that they would be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. So much of what God uses for good in this process is suffering and trial, which is precisely how He developed the maturity of Jesus. Say, wait a minute. Does Jesus need to mature? Of course, humanly, He does. He had to come to a knowledge of who His Father was. He had to come to a knowledge and experience of learning to trust God just as we do as human beings. And God used suffering in Jesus' life to develop this maturity. Hebrews chapter 5, if you'll turn there, Hebrews 5 and verse 8. The author of Hebrews is not shying away from the deity of Christ. Look at the first verses of this book if you have any question that way. This is the priest forever, Jesus Christ. This is the one, the unique image of God. This is the priest after the order not of Levi, but of Melchizedek. This one who has laid down his life for our redemption. Jesus is none other than God. However, chapter 5 and verse 8 the author says, He was a son. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Did Jesus need to learn not to disobey God? No, Jesus was sinless. But from infancy, Jesus did need to learn to trust God. To place His awakening human faith in the Father. And one of the means the Father used to nurture such maturing faith in His Son was the experience of suffering and trial. In His providential governance of evil, the Father used the suffering of a sinful world to teach Jesus to depend upon Him and to walk in obedience. So greater and greater trials called for greater and greater displays of faith until we come to the wilderness. Jesus is tempted by Satan in a severe trial until we come to the garden. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. The ultimate 
place of dependence and evidence of human dependence upon the Father was when Jesus Christ laid down His life to pay the penalty of sin. He went despising the shame in obedience to the Father, trusting in eternal reward. In fact, as we enter suffering, we walk down the very same path. Why would we expect that God would do anything differently with us? As Hebrews 12 reminds us, to be disciplined is simply to evidence that we belong to God, that He's treating us as children. God says to us as His children, I will bring trial and suffering and difficulty into your life to teach you obedience, to nurture you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I love you enough to do that. Preaching on this theme some years ago, a young man came to me after a sermon in distress. He said, I'm worried after a sermon like that because I don't suffer. I look at my life and I see no suffering. I knew him enough to know that he had a clear testimony of faith in Christ. And I said to him, just wait. Just wait. Since that time, He's experienced some very deep waters, some serious trials that God has used to nurture him and develop him, to humble him and to deepen him. God knows what we can handle and he knows when we need it. But if we belong to him, we will suffer. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered God uses suffering in our lives to transform us into the likeness of Christ. That's His stated agenda. And we can know in all of this gloriously that everything is working out for good in the lives of those who know Him as Savior. Now as we bring this truth to bear under the doctrine of divine providence, Let's hone in here and think of this clearly. The only way God can make this statement that He will work all things together for good, the only way that God can make this statement is if He ordains every moment of time, every free choice of man, and every circumstance of life, governing all things to fulfill His ultimate purposes. There is no other way that God could make such a statement. If God has nothing to do with evil, He has no business telling us that all things will work together for good because He doesn't really know. There's so much of this life that's not under His control. But if we understand providence rightly, this synchronizes with it. It fits in beautifully with the concept. And we can know that this word of assurance from God is solid and true. I will work all things together for good that you would be transformed into the likeness of Christ, that I would bring about maturity in your life, you can rest in that. We can put our faith, our trust, and our confidence in this. Now under the second head, we'll look at a number of more passages. But we trust that God sovereignly ordains our suffering and uses it for ultimate good. This second line of thought very much dovetails with the first. But I think it's a, a bit of a unique thought. And so we offer it here and support it biblically. And that idea is this, secondly. 
we can rejoice in our suffering knowing that God will use it to mature us. In the first place is confidence and trust in God's providential workings. In the second place is actually a response of joy because we see what He is doing. And this is a theme that continues to sound throughout Scripture. Going to the first chapter of James, if you'll work your way there, James chapter 1. We know again here this passage and a classic text that we must find familiar. James chapter 1 and verse 2, after this introduction to the book and these tribes, uh, these people of Israel who are dispersed, he says, to people who are suffering trial, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy is a moral imperative. This is God's counsel to us, His command. This is seldom an easy command to honor, but God issues this command, like always, for our edification, for our benefit. He says, when you face trials of various kinds. It doesn't sound like we're going to get a pass here, does it? It's going to happen. It's when. It will come. And it's trials of various kinds. Take this with you as we walk through to the end of the sermon. But it's not just persecution. Persecution is the ultimate sense of suffering and trial because we take purposely a path of suffering. But it's suffering of various kinds. Suffering under persecution is a calling from God. It's a calling that's on all of our lives on some level. But there are other kinds of suffering to which God calls us. And equally, the need there is to trust in God, to place our faith in Him, our confidence in Him. So it's trials of various shapes and sizes, of variegated colors and hues. You'll face all kinds. When you do, I want you to do this. Count it joy. Rejoice in it. Why? How? How can we count suffering trial a joyful thing? Verse 3, 4, and here's the reason. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know this. The perfection in view here is not sinless perfection, but maturity. Faith is like a muscle. And God exercises the muscle of faith with the weight of suffering. When faith is put under the strain of trial, the result is steadfastness, a deepening of faith, a growing dependence upon God. God exercises our faith so that we develop the maturity to trust Him more. We do not rejoice in suffering for its own sake as if it were good. Suffering is a result of the fall. It is not good. We rejoice, however, in what God will accomplish through suffering. And you know this, he says, and anyone that's walked with God for any length of time realizes as we look back upon our life, many times it is those experiences of deep suffering that have built our faith, that have led to steadfastness and trust in God. We don't like them. We don't ask for them but we know experientially that they have been used by God to deepen our faith and to build us up. 
And so we rejoice to know that God sovereignly uses suffering as an instrument to develop our faith. In his book, Trusting God, Jerry Bridges speaks in this regard of the Cecropia moth. This moth has an unusually difficult struggle in emerging from the cocoon. And it's natural to watch if you ever see this moth coming out of the cocoon to try to help it out a little bit and to snip the cocoon and let it out sooner. The problem is that this moth is sort of like crumpled cellophane. And it's in the process of exercising itself out of the cocoon that its muscles develop and that fluids are sent out into its wings so that it can fly. If you snip the cocoon and bring it out, it will remain a crinkled, crumpled ball that can never fly. And so writes Bridges, our danger in this life of suffering is to wish that God would, quote, snip the cocoon of adversity. His assurance to us is, no, rather than strive to get around the trial, rejoice in it, for God is using this to develop your wings of faith. And again, as we pause on this point, the only way we can rejoice in trial is that we truly believe God orders our suffering and sovereignly governs it to fulfill good ends. If we believe that the world is run by chance, if we believe that God is not all-powerful, if we believe that God is figuring things out on the fly as we are, We will find no way to rejoice in trials. We will have no confidence that God is using our trials for these ends. But when we know that God ordains and governs all things, we can have absolute confidence that He will use these trials to build our faith, and so we can rejoice. As Paul says in the letter to the Romans in chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. If you belong to Christ, you want those things. I firmly believe if you are a genuine believer in Christ, you want endurance. You want character. You want hope. You want to stand before Christ without shame. And God tells us, Rejoice then when you suffer, because that's what God's up to. A few books of the New Testament bring out these themes more interestingly and indeed thoroughly than the book of 2 Corinthians. Turn there, if you will, to 2 Corinthians. There's a reason why this book continues to bring out the theme of suffering. It's not written in a logical order for us as a topical study on suffering. But the idea of suffering is interwoven through these pages, and in part because Paul is suffering very significantly. He is suffering many trials with people. He is suffering psychological trial. He is suffering physical trial. There's a lot of trouble in Paul's life as he writes to the Corinthians here, and it is a book then that brings out this theme of suffering and our response to it in unique ways. Rather than trying to put it into any thematic 
or logical order. We'll just take it as it comes in the text. But he starts right here out of the gate as he talks about one of the purposes for why God uses suffering and thus one of the reasons we can rejoice. He says in verse 3, after this introduction, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you also experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You feel His passion, the zeal here of righteousness as a man learns obedience. The theme here through these verses is clearly the word comfort. It's the thematic emphasis. There are some translations that translate out the word comfort by trying to put in other synonyms, and I think they blow it by doing that. He wants us to get the idea that this is about comfort as he repeats the word over and over again in this first chapter. The Greek word has the understanding of a consolation that comes from God that strengthens our spirit and refreshes our soul. So I'm under trial and difficulty and God intervenes to strengthen my spirit and refresh me. There's an experience of comfort there that the world knows nothing about. It might try to find it temporarily at the bottom of a bottle or through a syringe or by escaping life through some sort of event or entertainment. But it knows nothing of this comfort, this refreshing of soul and strengthening of spirit that comes in the midst of trial and comes from God alone. Now notice a purpose for this. Verse 4. He comforts us in our afflictions. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in afflictions with the comfort with which God has comforted us. It's fairly straightforward. God uses suffering in our lives, first of all, that we would experience the wonder of His comfort. That in and of itself, is a reason to rejoice in suffering. Secondly, God uses suffering in our lives to equip us to serve as instruments of God's comfort to others. And this theme runs through the book as well. Remember the experience of Paul with Titus and the message that was sent to the Corinthians, the severe letter, and he's waiting for Titus to come back and they're supposed to meet at Troas. 
Paul is filled with anxiety. He's honest to say, I was worried sick when Titus didn't show up. So he journeys north into Macedonia, hoping apparently to cut the distance down between him and Titus traveling back. And in that context, he says in chapter 7, verse 5, notice here how the comfort is spread around. 7.5 For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. There's a man being honest with his trial. Verse 6, but God. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us and He did so by the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted by you. You comforted Him. He comforted me. It flows through the book. This spiritual refreshment and strength under trial flows from God to His people and from His people to other people. So back to chapter 1 and verse 6. He's saying here, if I could paraphrase him, if I suffer affliction, God will comfort me. And if He comforts me, I will be equipped to comfort you. And if you are afflicted, God will certainly comfort you directly like He comforts me so that you can comfort others. R. Kent Hughes tells the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor, seminary teacher, who was imprisoned by the Nazis in April of 1943. Bonhoeffer wrote letters from prison. That is a collection of many of the letters and poems that he wrote while he was incarcerated. One poem entitled New Year 1945 was written to his fiancée, Maria von Wiedermeyer. Put yourself into the scene imprisoned by the Gestapo, convicted of conspiracy, engaged to be married, separated. He wrote to her, should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain, at Thy command, God, we will not falter thankfully receiving all that is given by Thy loving hand. Echoes of Job. The Lord sovereignly gives and the Lord sovereignly takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Maria, find comfort in this. And she did. Three months later, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung to death by the Gestapo. He drained the cup of grieving, as did Maria. Eighteen years passed. Across the Atlantic, there was a young couple engaged to be married, and the man was killed in a sledding accident. His grieving fiancé, read Bonhoeffer's New Year 1945 poem. And she was uniquely comforted by it, knowing the circumstances. And she sent the poem to her fiancé's grieving parents. And they were comforted by the poem as well. And this father, 
Joseph later published his own book of poems entitled Heaven. Twelve years passed. And a pastor friend wrote to Joseph informing him that of late he had been ministering to a dying woman in a hospital in Boston. He explained that one night the woman stayed up late to read Joseph's book of poems on heaven. And she found comfort in his poetry. And in a few hours, she died. Just wanted you to know. Her name was Maria von Wiedermeyer Weller, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's fiancée three decades earlier. The trial, the grace from God, the comfort of rest and peace and refreshment and assurance that is then passed between His people to one another. We may have no such story to tell in this world, but this is how God runs His universe. His people comforting His people with His own supply of comfort. In verse 9, we see another reason for suffering, not only to comfort others with the comfort we've received from God ourselves, but Paul is honest to say here that we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He was at the place of utter despair. But that was, he says, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was the reason for it. I see that now. Another way, another way in which God uses suffering is to wean us from self-dependence to dependence on Him. Trials can seem like we have been ushered to the gate of death. But it is then that we learn to trust in God who raises the dead. In God who enlivens His people. Who enlivens His people. We can know that any suffering we encounter in this waking world is designed by God to build our faith in Him. And thus we can rejoice. This trial, whatever it is, is leading me to rely not on self, but on God. That's good. That is very good. Chapter 4. We looked at this passage in a slightly different context, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 4 a few weeks ago. But it's crucial assurance of God's providence in the midst of trial. Let's review it just again briefly. We need to know it well. Chapter 4, verse 16. And we do not lose heart, Paul says, this suffering Paul, though our outer nature, I'm not sure if I have the update or you do, but I've heard read a couple of times here today, the outer self, outer nature, however the update has put it, is wasting away and our inner self nature is being renewed day by day for this slight, or you may have reading light, which is probably a better translation, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now again, we note that Paul is not oblivious to the trials of life. In verses 8-10, through 10, in this immediate context, he speaks of being perplexed, of being driven to despair, of being persecuted, of being given over to death. 
This is not an ivory tower theologian. Paul's view of providence did not lead him to pretend away pain. He does not say that because God has ordained these things, we must merely resign to them taking place. No, Paul was hurting because of the trials of his life, and he admitted it. I was, he said, I want you to know, and he's got a lot of critics in Corinth, I want you to know I was driven to despair. And yet all of this suffering and travail Paul describes as light, momentary affliction. On the one hand, it was not too heavy to bear. It was lightweight. On the other hand, it was short-term. It was temporary. Lightweight and short-term on whose scale of measurement? Well, he says when we compare our suffering in this life with eternity, our suffering is by comparison lightweight and momentary. The Spirit of God gives us that assurance. And this from a man who visited heaven. This word, preparing. Light, momentary affliction is preparing, could be translated, is bringing about or producing. As we endure suffering under God's providential design, that suffering itself in the life of the believer is producing an eternal weight of glory. It has an effect in eternity. So when we suffer as God's children, the eternal glory that suffering will produce will far outweigh the temporal pain. God uses the weight of suffering to so change us, to so develop our faith, to so honor His name in the midst of it all, to transform us into the likeness of Christ to such a degree that the results will be worth every ounce of the suffering. I give you this assurance, writes Paul, as the Spirit speaks to us through His Word. This is not coming from some glib theoretical theologian. It's coming from a man who said, chapter 11, verse 24, that he had endured whippings, beatings with rods, shipwreck, a night and a day adrift in the sea, the dangers of journey and rivers and robbers and of His own people, of the Gentiles, of the city, of the wilderness, the dangers of sea and the dangers of false brothers. He speaks in verse 27 of toil and hardship and sleepless nights and hunger and thirst. Without food, cold, exposure, and apart from this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I want you to pull them all together in a big ball. And I want you to know that as we weigh that ball, it is light compared to the glory that those very trials are producing in eternity. The joy and the gladness and the purpose of it all settled there. No comparison. The man who went to heaven, chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, he was caught up into paradise in a vision, in some way that we don't fully understand, and it doesn't appear that he fully understands, he was taken up to see heaven in some sense. He was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know, but he, he sees the glories and the splendors of heaven. That was a problem. Verse 7. So to keep me from being too elated, that word means overly proud 
by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated, to keep me from pride. So 14 years earlier, Paul had received this vision of heaven, and a natural temptation would have been for Paul to become inflated with pride, to boast about his vision, to see himself perhaps as special in some sense because of it, to put too much confidence in it. Now, as we think of how he responds and what God has done here, we see a very helpful application of the doctrine of providence first of all we see the relationship of god satan and evil right here don't we the thorn in paul's flesh whose handiwork is it it's satan's messenger but let me ask you this is satan's design to produce humility in god's people is that what he likes to do this fallen angel of pride, does he labor over time to get God's people to be humble? The messenger is of Satan. The purpose is of God. God is using this messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh, to accomplish good in Paul's life. Here in this place, to expose latent pride and to put it to death. Satan was the immediate cause of Paul's physical suffering, but God was the ultimate cause, intending that Paul's suffering would deepen him in his walk with God by putting pride to death and bringing humility. We know this, don't we? Here's one of those things. We know this. We know that suffering unearths the roots of sin. It exposes the latent wickedness of our hearts. We respond in bitterness. We respond in anger. We respond in some sensual way to these temptations because it exposes, the pressures expose who we are. After exposing our sin, suffering serves as the anvil on which righteous character is built, one blow at a time. So I would not be filled with pride. God permitted Satan to send a messenger, a thorn in the flesh, to accomplish God's purposes. Secondly, verse 8, we see also under the theme of providence a demonstration of the right place of prayer under the providence of God. Verse 8, how does he respond? Three times. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul believed in prayer. His understanding of providence did not lead him to resign to whatever trial came into his life. He's not a fatalist. He knew that God was walking with him in this trial in time and space, and he pleads with God to deliver him from this satanic messenger. I don't think he prayed three times in four minutes. This is probably three times of fasting, three times of intense, labored prayer. God, take this away. Take this away from me. And so under providence of God, 
he sees this physical malady as something to be hated and he begs God to remove it. He keeps on praying so that we see thirdly, by way of application, he sees that a right understanding of providence sees suffering as an enemy to be resisted. The results of the curse are an intrusion into God's good creation. Honoring God's providence never means laying down to sin and suffering as if it is good in and of itself, but responding rightly to providence means we may come to a place where we realize God will not take it away. Or we enter into a situation where it's impossible for it to be reversed, such as death. But responding rightly to providence means that as it becomes clear, we yield to the purposes of God. We rejoice in the trial. And that's precisely what Paul does now. Verse 9, God responds to this repeated prayer and said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God signs off on Satan sending a thorn in the flesh, a messenger to torment Paul, and God says, I'm going to let it continue. That's what's best. Sometimes we get that answer from God. But He doesn't say, buck up, soldier. Get over it. Live with it. Deal with it. No, He says in compassion, My grace will be sufficient. Paul got the lesson. This suffering man writes, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For I have come to know that when I am weak, then I am strong in Christ. Here again then is another purpose of suffering. To place us in a weakened state so that we can experience the fullness of God's power. Murray Harris writes, Divine power finds its full scope and strength only in human weakness. The greater the Christian's acknowledged weakness, the more evident Christ's enabling strength. Suffering is never a good thing, but it is always a good thing when God sends us through it. Good, because we know God loves us and designs every adversity for our ultimate good. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis pens this classic line, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In our sinfulness, we like it when God whispers. We love ease. We love it when things go our way. We prefer to have all kinds of reasons to have to fight pride because it means things are going our way and it's all working. And we respond a little less enthusiastically when He speaks to our conscience, when the Word of God is read and it steps on our toes, when preaching confronts us in our sin, when the biblical counsel of a loving friend comes alongside to say this has to change. Oh, God's speaking to our consciences then, and it becomes a little harder. But how anxiously we avoid God lifting up His voice to declare His glories to us through the megaphone of pain. 
by God's grace, may we learn to embrace the sweet spiritual fruit that emerges from the bitter root of suffering. There's one thing that's not a danger as I look upon your faces and I look upon the congregation that gathered here just an hour or so ago. This isn't missing us. There's a lot of suffering that we have endured and are enduring as a congregation. As I speak these words, I look into faces of those that I know are in deep trial and grief. But there is such assurance and confidence here in God's Word and counsel to us. We can rejoice in it knowing that there is a God of providence who governs all things and has given this assurance, I will work it all together for good. I will deepen your faith. I will wean you off of self. I will show you your sin. I will transform you into the likeness of Christ. I will do this through your trial. That's not my word. That's His. It's not wishful thinking. It's the word that gives us life. Now, one of the dangers in all of this is we recited together from the Belgic Confession Day. It brought this out very ably that there is a danger to try to figure out what God is doing. To stick our nose in His playbook and say, oh, I see it. I see this is what He's striving to do. We were warned against that in the confession this morning. Theologian Millard Erickson says it well. We know that everything does have a significance within God's plan, but we must be careful not to assume that the meaning of everything should be obvious and that we should be able to identify that meaning. To suppose that we should be able to understand the significance of all of God's leading and that He will spell it out for us through some means akin to Gideon's fleece, that's superstition, not godliness. Theologian Paul Helm says more succinctly, Providence as such is mute. It doesn't speak. And we should be deaf to any message that we may think it is transmitting to us. There's faithful warning there. But having said that, in a world created, preserved, ordered, and governed by God, we can rest assured that there is no such thing as meaningless suffering. We may never understand why God chooses a particular path of suffering for a particular believer but we can always have confidence that nothing we face is ever random or ever without purpose. Nothing that happens in our lives will destroy us if we belong to Him. It can't. As William Cooper sought to encourage us and give comfort to us, he said, Judge not the world by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, know this, he hides a smiling face. I may speak to someone here today. You have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You have no assurance that you've been reconciled to God and stand as His child, safe in His forgiveness and grace. Let me say to you very briefly that suffering is the result of sin. Not necessarily or only, by any means, sins in your life. 
That God is matching one for one by suffering in your life. Not that, but sin in general has resulted in a suffering world. And I think it is important for you to know that the picture of Christianity is not the image of Buddha. Indulged, sitting at ease, with eyes shut to the evils of the world, and a little smile on his face. The image of Christianity is Jesus Christ with His arms outstretched, suffering tragically, horribly on the cross. And ultimately the picture is not even of that, but is of an empty tomb. Of Christ's victory over death, dying in the place of the sinner to pay the penalty of sin, but rising from the dead in victory to give life to us in this world of death. The ultimate picture is that empty tomb. The ultimate picture in our mind's eyes of Christ reigning in glory and soon to return. I would encourage you to embrace this Christ so that you're not left suffering meaninglessly now and for eternity. But through the forgiveness of sins, you're reconciled to God and receive the life that He gives as a gift. And for those of us whose hearts soar as we think of the grace of God in our life, the gift that He has given. This truth, this Word of God is so unique in this world. We need to focus on the glory that is to come to realize these sufferings are producing a great weight of glory to come. To despise the shame and the trial and the suffering of this life. To focus on that. And to walk then by faith in absolute confidence in the providence of God. Never forget that neither the catastrophic violence of a fallen planet nor any evil committed by any human being can ever veer outside the sovereign authority and ordaining purposes of our God. Never. And know that no matter what you suffer, Christian, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, there is not a drop of hell in it. Not a drop. Suffering is real. It's hard. It hurts. But for those who have been saved by Christ, it has been drained clean of hell. That Christ suffered for us. He has borne God's wrath in our place. When we come to terms with that truth, everything else we know is endurable and will build steadfastness in us. Until that day, when as the Apostle John reports, I heard a loud voice looking into the future from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This Light 
of momentary affliction working for us a great weight of glory when apparently we will not even be able to consider pain anymore in the presence of our glorious Savior. Let's bow in His name. As we sung, Father, earlier today, there's times when we don't understand. In those times, we need to bow the knee. I know there are great trials that are endured in this congregation, in our individual lives as believers. As we bear that weight, Father, thank You for the confidence of what You're doing for eternity. May we endure it. And I pray that You would draw to Yourself, draw to saving faith anyone here who does not know Christ as Savior. And may we all rejoice that Christ bore the ultimate punishment and wrath in our place. We thank You in His name. Amen.